You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Last week we talked about how every person is formed by two stories. Every person. The stories we live and the stories we live into. The stories we live are nothing less and nothing more than our particular biographies. It's our upbringing and our cultures and our values that we embraced when we were growing up as as children and into this very world in which we live today presently as a people. There's the stories we live. Last week we talked about the story we live into, that as God's people we know what God is doing in the end of the world. We know what he's doing in the present world and where he's taken it. And so we live in light of that world that is coming and is to come. But the story we live into, that's what we want to talk about today. This story that we live into that forms us and shapes us and has made us who we are. And before we do that, we've got to start with the macro story. Before we get on to our personal stories, we need to talk about the big story, the story that we have no real control over. We've got to think through what our worldview is. Because each one of us are raised to have one, And so we need to see what ours is so we can see the world clearly. And I want to offer you a biblical worldview. And we talked about this before, but it's the the world in which we live where there are two reigns, R-E-I-G-N-S-S, two reigns. There is one reign that that is called the reign of what? Anybody remember? Sin and death. And then there's the reign of what? Grace. The reign of the kingdom of grace and the reign of sin and death. And it flows to us from Romans chapter 5. So let's get a a clear picture of the macro and of the reign of sin and death and the reign of grace so that we can see this world in which we live. And then we're going to talk into our personal and very specific lives. So Romans chapter 5. Now we're picking up in the middle of a thought. This obviously begins with therefore and you need to know what it's there for. And so the reason it's there is because Paul has already talked about how we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And it's through Him and in Him and by Him that we stand in acceptance and love and in life with the Father of God, the Father God of heaven and earth. And so Paul comes in and he says this in verse 12, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man, one man and say this with me, death through sin. Okay, you guys got to wake up. We got coffee down there now if we need to take a break. In this way, death spread to all men. So when sin entered the world, what came? Death. But not just death itself, but the reign of death, because it spread to all men, because all then have sinned. It spread to all people. Now in fact, verse 13, sin was in the world before the law, talking about the law of Moses, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, he says, say this with me, death reigned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. He's not saying that when Moses came, it stopped. That's just a symbol. The idea is that death has just reigned. Adam and Moses were two of the most significant people, along with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the life of the Jews. And so Paul is saying that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. Death is reigning. There's nothing we can do about it. None of us can overcome death. None of us can can defeat death. Death. There's no, amount, there's no amount of the force that can help us defeat death. There's no amount of anything that can help us defeat death. Death is death. It will be death. And we are locked under the rule and the reign of death. And it flowed to us through Adam. 
And yet Adam was supposed to be the perfect human one. If we were to say, what does it look like to be human? We should have been able to say Adam. But Adam failed in his humanity and we inherit this humanity. But then Christ comes, which is what he means when he says he is a prototype of the coming one. Adam was a prototype of the Christ. Jesus Christ shows us what it means to be and to look human. When we say things like, oh, I'm only human, we're devaluing what humanity should be. Jesus Christ shows us what it looks like to really be human. We are all inhuman. And that inhumanity has been birthed through this reign of sin and death. Okay, you with me so far? I got self-esteem issues. I need some affirmation. You ready? Come, give me something. Were you with me so far? Everybody, need, need every. If you're not, then just do this, and I'll just give you my notes when we're done. Because we're on a time here. All right, then verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the man by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. The gift there is eternal life. It's salvation, which is profoundly more than just we get to go to heaven when we die. Salvation is you get God now and forever. That is salvation. And so he says this gift comes to us through Jesus. Verse, 14, uh, nope, verse 16, and the gift is not like the one man's sin because the one, from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation because we're locked in. It's the reign of sin and death. We're locked in. So we have nothing but judgment and condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass, say this with me, death reigned through that one man. How much more would those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness, say this with me, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So then, he sums it up. Paul's very repetitive. As through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone because it's the reign of sin and death. So also through one righteous act, there is life-giving justification for everyone because he's going to say, because it's the reign of grace. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more so that Read this with me. Just as sin reigned in death, so also, say this with me, grace will reign through righteousness resulting in the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's two reigns we live in. Every human being lives in one of two reigns. The reign of sin and death or the reign of grace. Now, out of the reign of sin and death comes death-dealing and sin-dealing realities. Hunger, poverty, brokenness, betrayal, divorce, sickness, uh, hatred, malice, uh, condemnation. Out of that comes, not from God, that comes not from just, quote, the world. That comes because of the reign of sin and death. The rule of sin and death gives out death-dealing, sin-dealing things. And every one of us, at one point in time, had the reign of sin and death as the foundation upon which we built our lives. Which is why we have a tendency to still give out death-dealing, sin-dealing things. Such as hatred, and hurt, and betrayal, and malice, and violence. That doesn't flow from the reign of the kingdom of grace. Jesus loved his enemies so much he would rather die for them than kill them. 
Death and violence and, and, and hatred and malice and condemnation doesn't flow from the reign of the kingdom of grace. But now we who are in Christ, we now live in which reign? The reign and kingdom of grace. As, as people in Christ, we live in the reign of the kingdom of grace. But we were transferred from which reign? From the reign of sin and death, which is why one chapter later, Paul says, hey, look, what I need you to do, because this is true, remember your what? Baptism. Because in your baptism, you remember that you were put into the reign of grace. You now have new life. You're dead to that old reign of sin and death. But the problem is that old reign of sin and death still has its way with our lives. It still forms, listen, it still forms the stories by which we currently live. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example. All right, you guys over here, you were raised in a wooden circle. You were raised in a wooden square. The wooden circle represents your family system, your family. The wooden square represents your family system and your family. When each one of us were born, we were born as lumps of clay. You were born as a lump of clay placed in a square called your family. And as you grew up, you began to take shape. Guess what shape you take? The, the circle. Because you're the circle, right? Y'all need to get new families. You're the circle. So you grow up and you become a circle. Because that's the system, the family from which you were raised. The values, the beliefs, and what you knew to be true, how love was defined, what's important in the world, all those things formed you that's the circle. You become a circle. You, as you grew up and you were raised and you spread out, you became a what? Square. And the square is your family and your family system. That's the values and where your sharp edges. All those different things come from that. Now the problem is what happens is for you in the circle, you were defined differently. Your love is defined differently because when your parents said they loved you, they meant with condition. I love you with all my heart, but then they left you. And so now you inherit this vision and view of love, and that becomes your vision and view of love. And you guys were raised in this square to where you were a part of a family system that just kind of quit things when it got hard. So you grow up, what do you think you do? When things get hard, what do you have a tendency to want to do? Quit things. Because that becomes acceptable behavior based upon your family system. And that becomes your acceptable behavior based upon your family system. What I've just done is give you new systems theory for families. All right, now, I'm not trying to take you to social science class. I'm trying to help us understand is how the reign of sin and death works itself out in our life. Because when our family system is shaped by the reign of sin and death, we inherit that same thing, or no matter what it is, and every one of ours, in some way, in some shape, form, or fashion, no matter how great or Christian our families were, every one of us were raised and shaped by the reign of sin and death in some way. And so we spend the rest of our lives learning how to build our lives upon a different foundation. So my friend David, and I've told the story about him before he came to us in campus ministry when Alice and I were in campus ministry in Georgia. He came to us at the age of 40. And he was raised by a father who used to tell him that he loved him, but also in the same breath would tell him that he wished he had never been born and that he wasn't his child. And so when David came into life with us and we talked about God the Father, 
What do you think David's response was to that? What? No, thank you. It was a trigger for him. It made him feel sick inside. Because we took this beautiful God and labeled him with Father, and that God all of a sudden turned into a monster. And so David had this view of love that was very much built upon condition, and this view of God the Father that was not love at all. And he couldn't explain it until one day when he truly surrendered his life to Jesus over the course of years did he realize that the narrative of his earthly father did not have the power that the narrative of his heavenly father could have on his life if he would just decide which narrative he was going to pursue. You with me? Are you with me? So Paul says a few chapters later in Romans chapter 12, he says, I don't want you to be conformed to this age. Conformed is pressed in. The Greek word literally means systematically formed by the pattern of. I don't want you to be systematically formed by the pattern of this age. This age is what? What age do you think he's talking about? The reign of sin and death. Because that's the age that's passing away, right? But I want you to be transformed by what? renewing of your mind. See, for David, my friend, he had what we call an authorizing narrative. Now stay with me. What does the word authorizing mean? Yeah, that it grants permission. It has power and authority. And narrative is another word for story. David's authorizing narrative in regards to love for him was the experience he had with his father. And that had power over his life so much to the degree that he saw everything else through that narrative. That's why it is an authorizing narrative because authorizing narratives are defined this way. The stories of our lives that have the power to define us. They have power over us. They have authority in our lives. So much authority that they can shape how we see others, shape our view of the world. That's why north and south matters. That's why geographical location matters. All these things matter because we are formed by two, within these stories we live, we're formed by two realities, our social story and our family story. And those two things together form the story in which we currently live. And the tragedy is, is most of us don't know it. So we operate day to day out of that story with unhealthy relationships and broken relationships, not knowing what's wrong. And so we go, what's wrong with me? And we don't know. And what you start finding out is there's an authorizing narrative there that frames what it means to be in relationship. Someone like my friend Terry. Terry's not a member of this church. And I'm not trying to give you the bad stories or the sad stories. I'm just trying to give you the stories. Then I'll give you some other stories that seem very sort of simple. Terry was raised by her mother because her father abandoned her at a young age. And so Terry's mother began to have to work job after job after job to provide for her and the siblings. And so Terry was stuck taking care of the siblings, thrust into a maternal relationship with her siblings. And as Terry got older, 
She didn't have this man in her life. She didn't have that nurturing in her life. And so as she specifically got older, she started growing up looking for boyfriend after boyfriend after boyfriend after boyfriend after boyfriend and became active with those boyfriends in very specific ways. And to the point to where it was so much a part of her life, she started developing reputations and all of these things. And the tragedy about Terry's life is that as she got older and grew into adulthood, Terry couldn't hold down a good friendship. Because anytime someone got close to her, she bailed. You tracking with me so far about Terry's life? I need some affirmation here. All right. So Terry gets married. Marriage is great and well. The marriage eventually ends because he leaves. Over the course of time, Terry gets married again. And then Terry leaves. And Terry enters into church family, into a community, and she drives the church nuts. She's labeled as needy and dramatic and rude. Because every time you try to get close to Terry, she backs away. And she does it in a forceful way. And so she becomes practically unlikable. What's Terry's authorizing narrative? Abandonment. Dr. Golder, how are we doing here? We doing okay? Abandonment. And that sense of abandonment had so much authority in her life that it began to paint every other picture and specifically the abandonment with her father. So then every male-female relationship was shaped by that. And the problem was the church never knew until the church found out. And so when the church found out, the church decided that there was a way to fight for Terry. And so come hell or high water, no matter what, the church would never let Terry push him away. People started surrounding Terry and started being with Terry in a way that they would fight for her, even if it meant they had to fight her. And they fought and fought and fought. And Terry tried to kick and push away. Every time they got closer, the church moved in. And over the course of time, she discovered a God who said he would never leave or forsake her. And then the church was like, this is the God that's compelling us to not leave and forsake your sorry self. And over the course of time, she began to change the way she saw not only herself, but others. The only way to deconstruct an authorizing narrative is to find one with more authority. Are you with me so far? And then begin living into that narrative, which then begins transforming our lives on a day-to-day level. You with me? The reign of of the kingdom of grace is that narrative. And it gets down into the muck and middle of our lives. I'll give you another example. One not so sad, but equally as profound. But you won't catch it unless you think it through in light of authorizing narrative. So I had this 80-year-old brother who was raised in South Georgia. Who a, a good close friend in the church was a man with his family from Canada. And he had kids from Canada. And in Canada, they don't teach kids to say ma'am and sir and please. But in South Georgia, you get a beat down, you don't say ma'am and sir and please. That's just how we do it. Matter of fact, to not say ma'am and sir and please in South Georgia is considered what? Rude. And disrespectful. So so for years, this 80-year-old brother tolerates these kids who don't say, and I say tolerates, these kids who don't say ma'am and sir until one day, the 80-year-old brother loses it on the parents. 
just loses it. You've got disrespectful kids who lack manners and just went off. And the parent walks away not knowing what in the world this is about. Why? Because in Canada, they don't say ma'am, sir, and please. You with me? So the 80-year-old brother's authorizing narrative in this particular aspect was his cultural upbringing that all children should say, ma'am, sir, and please. And that narrative had so much authority on his life that it dictated how he dealt with people who didn't say it. You see how this works? We all have them. We all have them. So this young woman and young man fall in love and they get married. It's beautiful. They can't afford a honeymoon, but they're rich in love. It's not like a country song. They have a dog, dog dies. No. And they can't afford the honeymoon, so they decide that their first night together, she's going to cook him his favorite meal, and his favorite meal is a honey-baked ham. And so he gets home and she says, honey, I'm going to cook your honey-baked ham. And he's so excited. He sits down, he adorns his clothes with a napkin, and he has a knife and a fork, and he sits there and he waits in anticipation of this honey-baked ham. She takes the ham out of the fridge. She cuts it in half. She throws half the ham away, and then she takes the other ham, and she leaves it on the cutting board, and she takes the pan out, and she puts the pan on the counter. She takes the ham, and she puts the ham in the pan, and she pushes it into the oven, and a few hours later, the ham comes out, and he's still sitting there. And she places it on the table and she says, here, my beloved. I know, right? If only. <laughs> All the wives are like, What's, this is clearly made up. <laughs> and he looks at her and says, thank you. But sweetheart, where's the other half of the ham? And she says, I threw it away. And he says, why did you throw it away? She says, that's what my mother always did. He said, why does your mother throw half a ham away? And she says, I don't know. He says, call your mother. And so she calls her mother and says, mama, I just cooked a ham for my husband. Why? And I threw half of it away and I don't know why. Why did I throw half of it away? And she says, because that's what you do when you cook ham. And she says, but why do we do that when we cook ham? And the mother says, I don't know. And she says, well, then why did you do it? And she says, because that's what my mother always did. And she says, well, call grandma and find out. And so the mom hangs up the phone and she calls her mother and says, Mother, when you used to cook this ham, why did you always throw half of it away? And she says, because honey, the whole ham never fit in the pan. <laughs> the reality of that story is that's how authorizing narratives work their way into the everyday lives of people. And until we learn to locate ourselves and locate these narratives in our lives, we are incapable of living into a different one. Do you hear me? Until we know that these are the narratives that have authority in our lives, that are shaping every aspect of our lives, and it could mean all the way down to how we cook ham. We don't know how to live a different life. And so we wonder, why are we this way? Why do I feel this way? Raise your hand if you have sins that you just can't seem to kill. Raise your hand. For those who didn't, we need to talk to you so you can teach us how to be perfect. 
Raise your hand if you have behaviors that you just can't seem to kill that you think really do reflect the sin of death and the sin of death in your life. Yeah. And so we have those behaviors and those habits and those, those hang-ups that we just can't seem to get rid of in our lives and we don't know why. And it comes down to knowing and locating our authorizing narratives in our life. And then when we learn to surrender that narrative to the narrative of the gospel of the kingdom of God and change the way we think and see that thing that it is in our lives, until we do that, we're stuck. But when we begin to do that, we begin to live a different life over time. And listen to me, it's not a light switch, it's a dimmer. We think that when we come to Christ, we get in the waters of baptism, we come out, all of a sudden everything's hunky-dory. It's not a light switch, it's a dimmer. All of us have lived lots of life and built lots of our lives on the reign of sin and death, and we came into the reign of the kingdom of grace, and it won't be deconstructed overnight. But we need to be able to locate ourselves and know where these stories come from. And that there are stories in our lives and experiences in our lives, stories made up of our experiences and relationships and cultures and language, even our internal wirings of introvert and extrovert, the stories that are made up of those things that have authority in our lives. And that becomes a story we live until we discover them. Do we understand and admit and accept the authority they've had and then lay those stories down in the cross? So Jesus said, go back if you will, David. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, when asked what the greatest command was. He said, the greatest command is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then Luke says, with all your strength. He says, this is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two things. Here's what he means. He means all the law, everything about life and religion and happiness and joy and relationships, everything hinges on these two things. Loving God and loving neighbor, others. But what I love about Jesus is Jesus wasn't abstract. Jesus didn't just say, Love God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was concrete. And Jesus should be concrete because Jesus is an expression of God's concreteness, isn't he? I mean, he is God made flesh. Born a particular man in a particular place to a particular family at a particular time. God's love is particular. And we don't tend to the particular. We just say, I love God. But that's not it. Do you love God with all your heart? With all your what? Soul, and with all your what? And with all your what? And do you love your what? As you love who? Because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Not just, I love God. With Jesus is my boyfriend songs. But it's loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And so what I want to give you, because I told you we would... We're going to give you a practical tool. I want to give you a practical tool, something you can wrestle with and work with. So if you've got a pen and your notes or your conversation guide, go ahead and get it out. If you don't have a pen, Justin, would you mind handing out pens, brother? Raise your hand and Justin will get you a pen. Because I want you to write this down. Now this comes from, here's the, um, here's the uh, interest of full disclosure. This comes from the three restoration curriculum that I've written that Dr. Golder edits and that we, through 3 Restoration, equip other people to do. But as we have been equipping churches to do this work, we have found that this is just discipleship. This just leads us all into healing and wholeness. 
to, as Jason Thornton said a few weeks ago, shalom. So we want to give you a symbol. It's a symbol we call the location triangle. And what it does is it deals with what I call the five-fold realities of poverty and brokenness. And, and when you say, so remove the word poverty, you can just say the five-fold reality of brokenness. There's a reason I believe that Jesus said, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and neighbor as self, because that covers the whole being. Because we live as emotive beings, cognitive beings, spiritual beings, physical beings, and social beings. We're not one of the five. We're not three of the five. We are all of the five. You with me so far? You with me so far? Come on, I need some. All right, thank you. All right. So to love God with all our heart, we need to know where we are emotionally. Why do we feel what we feel? What are we feeling? And where do those feelings come from? Because until we answer that, we will not know how to remove those feelings. We need to know where we are cognitively. How are we thinking about the world, seeing the world? What are we thinking and seeing about the world? Why do we think and see what we think and see about the world? The world's going to hell in a handbasket, and now I'm scared of the zombie apocalypse, so I build an underground shelter with, you know, bazookas. Look, man, they just launched a new series called Fear of the Walking Dead, so now you know what could happen. I mean, but we get so worked up and with the way the world's going. So why? Why? Where are you cognitively? Where are you spiritually? What is life with God like for you? Where are you physically? Are you healthy? Do you feel good about yourself? Do you physically feel good? Look, me and a few guys here started playing indoor soccer. Are you kidding me? Like, I was dry heaving and buzzing the whole time. Like, like my arm is so out of shape, it's ridiculous. And it's a bit of a wake-up call, at least that day. I'm trying to do a little better. But where are you physically when you run up the stairs and you're out of breath? What does that mean to you? Where are you socially? With your neighbor. And when I say your neighbor, I don't mean your next door neighbor only. That includes your next door neighbor. But I mean everybody within proximity. Are you the victim and martyr? Are you always the one who's done wrong? Are you always the one who sacrifices despite it all? Is that who you are? Are you manipulative, always trying to leverage relationships for your good to be loved and to be the center of attention? Are you in healthy relationships? Do you have a close circle of people? If you don't, why not? Is it because you're the victim and martyr and that you may? I mean, what is it? Where are you? Are you just isolated and you're just kind of content? Well, if you are, why? See, here's the, here's the issue. If we don't tend to these things in our lives, we don't experience the fullness of the breaking of the kingdom of God in our lives. Because God then doesn't heal us emotionally and cognitively and spiritually and socially and physically because we don't surrender it to Him because we haven't tended to it. We've just grown lazy or complacent in it and just say that we love God, but yet we don't know why our life's a wreck. And we don't tend to our authorizing narratives that form us and shape us to embrace a new one that can form us and shape us anew. Here's the best part. Let me give you the best part before I give you the symbol. All you and I need to know is where we're located, spiritually, physically, emotionally, cognitively, and socially, and begin living from that location, and it's the Holy Spirit that changes us. Can I get an amen? amen. It's the Holy Spirit that will change us. But we have to be willing to locate ourselves. So I'll give you the triangle of location. In the upward, so draw a triangle. 
It's the three-sided shape. Those of you who, like me, failed geometry. And at the top of the triangle, write the words upward. And that has to deal with your life on a spiritual reality. And look at these words in the middle. If you can't read them, squint real hard. In the middle of the triangle, write the word location. And under the word location, I want you to write where, what, and why. Where are you spiritually? What is happening as a result of where you are spiritually? You tracking? And why are you there spiritually? Because when you know where you are spiritually and what's happening to your life as a result of where you are spiritually and why you are where you are spiritually, when you know that, you'll know how to get out of that mess. You'll know how to take the next step toward grace. I have seen this work in countless times in my own life and the lives of others as I've taught it. To the right or wherever you want, at the other corner, write the word inward. And in parentheses under inward, this deals with who we are and where we are and what we are cognitively, emotionally, and physically. And ask the question, where am I cognitively? Where am I thinking? Where am I in how I think about the world and see the world? What is it that I think about the world and see in the world, the society, my workplace, campus, my relationships? What am I thinking about? And then why am I thinking what I'm thinking about what it is I'm thinking about? This is just self-reflection. And then we can surrender it to the Holy Spirit of God in prayer. And we can begin taking a different step because you may go, dude, I'm kind of really freaked out over the zombie thing. And I don't even believe in them. And so then you start living from the end of the story. See? And this is how it changes. See, even the little ones think that's... And then the same thing with physically. And then finally you have the outward. And that's socially. Where are you socially? Where are you socially? What is happening in your life socially? The people... Involved. Why are you there? How do you move to the place that you know you're wired to be? Until you know these others, you can't know the how. Church, I just want us to learn how to live intentional lives and locate ourselves in the story of God so that we're not one foot in the story of God and one foot of the reign of sin and death. So we can live a full life and a whole life, a life of shalom. This is the difference between looking at things with great intentionality and purpose or not. And just wanted to offer this to you today. Know who you are and whose you are so you know where you're going. Know the stories that form your life and which ones are having power over you and surrender those stories to the God who invites you into a new one, a different one. A story where there is life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such there is no other story. Know that story. Live in that authorizing narrative. 
and be transformed by the renewing of your mind.